0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most outlandish, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative. It could be like your siblings, like a brother or a sister, or, uh, the victim could be like an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, or any other close relative. Um, and you would think that the, when you, you murdered like a parent or somebody like that, that, that would kind of like, it would, you know, warrant like a life sentence. But, I mean, for some reason, I don't know. I mean, but in most of these cases that I'm researching, it didn't. And mostly all of the murderers that have been, that will be profiled in this season, they have already either served their time and have been released, or they do have a possibility for being paroled. So that was interesting, you know. So for, you know, that's what the focus is on. Uh, for the cases for this season. We're going to be focusing on cases where, uh, you know, there were like parasite cases, you know, they killed their parents or close relatives, something like that, you know. And for the listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, I'm going to say it again. No, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because that's pretty much kind of like old news now. For, especially for people that really have followed me and my story, you can already check all that out on um, my payback episode, which was featured um, on TV one, as well as my justice by any means story. And you can click that um or you can just click on the episode entitled why I do what I do on this podcast. So, but for this season, season eight, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers who, for whatever reason, have murdered their mother or their father or their grandparents or a caretaker. Basically, killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering a parent or a grandparent. So for this season, season eight, the killer for this episode that I'm going to profile is 18-year-old Ross Hakeem Telp, and just like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention or the case needs to be reopened or something because basically not a lot, if anything, is being done anymore, and the unsolved murder that I am going to profile for this episode is the unsolved homicide of 13 year old Sarah Jane Forrester? Whew, now this next case, y'all, I'm telling y'all, I'm, I'm not even gonna lie to you. It is one for the books. It's, it's one for the books. I, I, I can't make this up. Now, me being from Baltimore, when you hear about somebody killing like their mother or they murdering their father. One of the most memorable cases of parricide that comes to my mind is the savage, cold blooded, twisted, weird murder of fifty-two year old Margot Baker, Margot Antoinette Baker that was committed by her son, eighteen year old Ross Hakim Telp. And the reason why I say this is because you you, you got to look at it like this. Look at it like this. Killing your mother or your father is one thing. Like I said, you know, for whatever reasons you got it, you know, abuse, you know, a history of stuff, you know, most kids don't naturally just grow up wanting to really kill their fathers. I understand they go through their teenage years or whatever, but... Even for the most part, they don't fantasize about murdering their kids. I mean, murdering their parents, not that I know of. And it's like, but lying, doing all of that is one thing. And especially if you go through the act of actually doing it, of actually murdering your parents, that in itself is one thing. But lying about it on camera, lying about not knowing where she is, making up outlandish stories... About what happened to her. That's a whole nother issue. That's a whole nother level. And this dude. When I saw all of this on TV. Basically. If anybody saw all this on TV. You could tell he was flat out lying And I was like you know what. He did it. I ain't gonna lie. I mean to me it was obvious. The story starts like this. From something simple. But it ends with. A brutal and horrific and senseless murder. 18-year-old Ross Hakeem Telp lived with his mother, 52-year-old Margot Antoinette Baker, in a row home in the 4300 block of Park Heights Avenue in Northwest Baltimore. Occasionally, Margot would let her son, Ross, drive her car, which was a Suzuki sidekick, one of them little SUVs y'all remember like the little cars or Jeeps or whatever. (laughs) Oh my God. Back in the nineties, I ain't gonna lie. I kind of did want one. And, um, when I was younger, I ended up getting me an Isuzu Amigo. (laughs) Y'all remember that? (laughs) That Jeep turned out to be a complete, complete hunk of junk, but it was definitely a learning experience. I mean, I used to keep a case, not a bottle, but an entire case of oil in the trunk of that car because that thing always leaked oil all the time. And my oil light would come on all the time because it was always leaking so much oil. It didn't even matter how far I was driving. I mean, but anyway, back to the story. I don't even know how we got off topic. Anyway, Margo had this little Suzuki, which was her like pride and joy. And like I said, occasionally she would let her son drive the car. On the morning of April 26, 2005, after Ross drove his mother's car and brought it back home, Margot discovered that Ross had scratched up the rims, or better yet, the hubcaps that was on her little Suzuki, and they started arguing about it. The argument turned like ferocious. Then the argument turned physical. And after the argument turned physical, Ross, who was a boy, a, a young man who he was he wasn't he was prone to temper tantrums, and really didn't know how to control his temper, but not like this, not like this. So Ross ended up grabbing a steak knife and stabbing his four feet eleven inch mother several times until he killed her and she stopped moving and he knew that she was dead. Now, what kind of outburst is that? Everybody been mad at that, you know, their parents and stuff like that. And like I said, even as a 10 year old, I, you know, swung stuff like that, but it didn't come to my mind to pick up a, a steak knife or, and, and want to stab my mother, especially over some rims or some hubcaps on a Suzuki. And like the rims was like some BB, BBSs or some AIEs, you know, back in the day, these were some regular freaking factory rims or hubcaps that is usually, that they usually come with the, um, the Suzuki. Anyway, Ross only had like a few minor charges on his record, like drug possessions, but nothing to explain a sudden outburst like this now after ross stabbed his mother and he realized that he killed her maybe he did come to his senses and realize like what the fuck did i just do maybe he did feel bad shocked at himself for what he did i don't know what i mean i don't know what it's like to have like such pent-up rage But after Ross stabbed his mother and he realized that she wasn't moving no more, did Ross call for help? Did he call for an ambulance? Did he call the cops? Did he do anything? I mean, did he tell a neighbor? Did he tell anybody? Did he be like, you know, oh my God, I snapped, anything like that? Was he automatically thinking, I'm going to jail? According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, after killing his mother, Ross put his mother's body in a sheet Wrapped her, wrapped the sheet up in a child's plastic swimming pool, wrapped everything up. Then he called like up a friend, somebody that he thought he could trust. And he asked his friend to help him get rid of his mother's body. Imagine that phone call. Imagine if you was Ross's friend and you got him calling up him saying, look, I just stabbed my mother. Need you to help me come get rid of the body. That's kind of cold. Don't you think? Ross even started bragging about what he did, like, to his friends, apparently thinking that it was going to make him seem like some type of big shot or something. Like, why would you want to be known as a big shot as the person that killed that stabbed your mother? Like, what did he really think his friends was going to do eventually? What, what did he think they was, um, you know, going to do, especially with him bragging about how you basically shanked your mother to death? I mean, so after Ross wrapped up his mother's body, he put her body in a car and drove to Baltimore City's homemade burial ground, which is also known as Leakin Park. Now, before I even take another step, I got to explain to y'all what Leakin Park really is. Now, people who are not from Baltimore, people not from Bmore, and who listen to this podcast, y'all already know. Well, people that are from Bmore and who listen to this podcast, y'all already know what Leakin Park is. Y'all already know the significance of Leakin Park to this podcast. And trust me, this is not going to be the first time we talk about Leakin Park. But Leakin Park is like a huge, it's like a wooded park in, what's that? I want to say West Baltimore, I guess. It has like lakes, fishing areas, I think, walking trails, bike trails, all that type of stuff. I, I mean, even parts of it, they might consider it Baltimore County, Baltimore City. It's like on that line because it go, it's kind of a big park. But anyway, Leakin Park ain't known for its walking trails or bike trails, or most of us know Leakin Park from Baltimore City. Now, I'm from Beemore, if y'all don't already know that. And even I'm saying. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to put it right out there. Even I'm saying you a fool. If you go walking through this park (laughs) during the daytime or even at nighttime, I don't care how many times they try to rehab this park, how many, how many times they try to redo it, add lights, this, that, and the third or whatever. According to ranker.com as of this year, 2023, there have been 79 bodies found in leakin park since 1946 now that's not that long ago that's only 77 years so at least a that's like at least a body a year has been found in this particular park in baltimore city but everybody from here know leakin park is basically basically like i ain't even gonna lie it's like a burial ground for homicide victims or even for suicide victims. So many killers use this park as an area to like dump their victims, their bodies. I mean, there could be, that that in itself could be like a whole nother story in itself. A whole nother book talking about Leakin Park. Y'all think I'm lying, but like I said, people that's from here know Leakin Park is like a burial ground. And because so many killers have dumped their bodies in this park. I guess that's what made Ross choose the same park to get rid of his mother's body. And after Ross carried his dead mother's body out of the car, Ross walked right throughout the park. He, he tossed her body down an embankment to, like, behind. Uh, I think that was a what's it called Cahill Recreational Center in the 400 block of Clifton Avenue. It's like a recreation. I don't. I'm not even sure if it's even still there. But either way, that was an easy, like, the park is hidden. It's just easy to get to. It's just a big park. After Ross came home, that night, I mean, that morning, around 10 a.m. on April 27, 2005, the next day, Ross finally called 911 and reported to the dispatcher that his mother was missing and that he wanted to file a missing persons report. When the police showed up, Ross told them that his mother had left out the day before to go see some friends and that she hadn't come back home yet, which wasn't like her. In his words, he was like, I mean, <sighs> I don't know why he decided to do this next move. And this is what made me feel like he had something to do with him. I ain't gonna lie, when I first heard about this particular murder. And when I heard, like, why would he decide, especially if you're lying, he decided to go on camera, on the news, on WBAL Channel 11 News, with his back facing the camera. His back was facing, he wasn't even facing the camera. He was talking about some, this was his words, he was like, she was just leaving out with a friend, and she said she would be back. And I haven't seen her since. Her bed was made I saw her pocketbook on the floor. That's when I started making phone calls to my aunts and uncles. I still believe that she'll come through that door. I was upstairs changing my clothes, and I haven't seen her since. Hmm. Now, when I saw this on TV, like I said, with Ross saying all this with his back to the camera, I immediately was like, he did it. I I can't remember. I mean, I immediately was like, yo, why he do that? He did it. He straight up killed his mother. Why would you give an interview covering your face if you really wanted to find out what happened to your mother? He wasn't crying enough. it It was giving the I'm guilty vibes. I mean, to me personally, I just knew that that was just a matter of time before not just me, but everybody else, including the police, saw through all that bullshit. But for right now, they had no real reason to doubt Ross's story. And they thought that this was just still a missing person's case, and even even the police uh and for now the police just went with what they he was telling them they like the police was like they thought that he was credible now Margot was also she was just basically considered missing. Ross wasn't arrested or nothing, and he was allowed to leave the police station in the meantime Margot's family and friends. They also believed Ross, and they made flyers with Margot's pictures on it, asking if anybody had seen her. And if they did, they was basically begging them for, like, any information on her, or for anybody to basically whoever had her to bring her back. The that whole time that peoples was, you know, running around frantically looking for her and organizing search parties and stuff. Ross was literally bragging to his friends that he knew where his mother was the whole time. That's kind of sick. I mean, one friend couldn't believe what he was hearing the same thing. I mean, he was just like, what? And he secretly called the detectives and told them that Ross was the one that they should be questioning. He told them that Ross had been going around telling everybody and basically bragging about killing his mother. And dumping her body somewhere in West Baltimore in the Pimlico neighborhood. So when the detectives heard this, they went back to Ross's house and decided to confront him with what they had heard. Ross got really like defensive. He just got combative. He started talking about he didn't know what they was talking about. You know, just how somebody would act if they were lying. But he did agree to come down to the police station for more questions. At first, for hours, Ross still insisted that he ain't know where his mother was and he didn't kill her and he ain't dumping nowhere and he don't know what they was talking about. But after all that questioning, that weighs down on people's mind. I mean, especially when, you know, when you're sleeping, they just be like, you know what? After Ross eventually realized that detectives had all night They can take shifts and that they wasn't going to let up on their intense questioning. And after the detectives did what they do, which was they can say anything to get a confession, lie, whatever. And they promised Ross that, yeah, you know, if you show us where you put her body, then we'll let you go. He probably was tired, sleepy, all that. You know, he was just like, you know what? I don't even care no more. I am done. I'm just done. (laughs) Ross eventually just gave in and he believed that shit, probably from lack fatigue and everything, so he led them to Leakin Park and showed them where he had thrown his mother's body down an embankment about fifty yards. Her Margot's I mean in an autopsy report it later determined that Margot, who had worked in the laundry room at Harbor Hospital, had been stabbed over 40 times in her head, neck, and chest. Harbor Hospital confirmed that Margot had been an exceptional award-winning employee of that hospital, and she had lived in her home for more than 20 years. After Ross led the detectives to Margot's remains, contrary to what he was told and contrary to what he believed, Ross was not allowed to go home. He was not going home today. So instead, a week after he reported his mother missing, Ross was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, held without bail. Six months after brutally slashing his mother to death, Ross pled guilty to second-degree murder and a weapons charge. And he stood in front of a judge to face his sentencing in January of 2006. When Ross was asked if he had anything to say before he received his sentence, Ross, he said to, you know, everybody that was, I guess, the spectators, he was like, I'm sorry to my family. I regret my actions every day. I'm in a cell by myself and I think about my mother every day and every hour now Judge Glenn he wasn't moved by Ross's words and he called Ross himself a truly depraved and probably beyond redemption before he sentenced him to 33 years in prison now imagine first of all let's start at the top imagine having to to live with that You know, everybody, including he, had nothing but nice words to say about his mother. But he still managed to snap and stab her 40 times? Over 40 times? What kind of rage was that? What was she saying to him about these hubcaps that made him just lose it like that? That's what I'm saying. I mean, when I heard about this, I was like, and then that interview, I said, yeah, he did it. He he did it. I'm I'm sorry to say it. I was like he did it. It's just some I could just tell and I know I wasn't the only one who felt it. You know, the thing about it and then you're bragging about it to your friends? Wow. I mean, what kind of mother did you think you have? The the thing about it is he only got 33 years. So that means that he'll soon or will eventually will be released. But to me, the 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 pain of living with that every day would be devastating enough, even on the outside. So, because of the the, the like I said, the back to the camera thing, the stabbing, forty times, the Leakin Park classic classic murder case in Baltimore, and that was why this one was selected as one of Maryland's most notorious. Parasite Cases. Now, moving right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide, and just like in every episode that has been featured in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where those cases may have received a lot of attention, a lot of press, a lot of media coverage... This podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. These type of cases don't receive a lot of press or if any attention at all. These type of murders are so common in the state that there's not a lot of time to really just focus on one because by the time you're doing that, it's another homicide that just happened. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering. I mean, it's unbelievably, it's really like ridiculous when you tell the truth. I mean, it's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do it all by themselves, like what you might see on first 48 or something on Netflix in Maryland it's not like that homicide detectives are often overworked underpaid, understressed and flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time but what happens to those cases where nobody is talking at all what happens when there's absolutely no clues no evidence, no witnesses whatsoever or What happens to the homicide cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle where it seems like it just seems a smidgen like the detectives, they're not really trying to investigate the case because the victim, quote unquote, they might think like, you know, well, they had it coming anyway. What happens to those type of homicide cases? You know, maybe they feel like, okay, this person was in a drug game. They were selling drugs. They was using drugs. You know, I'm not going to spend that much time and resources on trying to really, you know, I'm going to focus on this. Do these type of killers or killers just simply get away with murder? Because there's so many murder cases in Maryland, especially Baltimore City. It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares anymore but because the public simply just forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new and other homicides. It's like we have become almost immune to homicides in this state. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk a lot about cases where the murders are infamous and they did receive a lot of attention and press and notoriety on the flip side... A focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the murder of 13-year-old Sarah Jane Forrester. For whatever reason... 13-year-old Sarah Jane Forrester lived at the Children's Home Group Home in the 200 block of Bloomsbury Avenue in Catonsville. That's like a group home where sometimes for runaways or... uh, uh, You stay there a little bit temporarily. I never stayed there, but I know people who have. Um, And on February the 20th, 1999... Sarah ran away from this group home and Sarah was last seen on April 28th, 1999 in the Edgewater Village area of Harford County. Uh, a couple, I would say about two weeks later after that on May 12th, 1999. That was the last time anybody seen her. Two weeks after that, two weeks later, I'm sorry, Two weeks later, on May 12, 1999, she was last seen on April 28, 1999, but two weeks later, on May 12, 1999, kids who had been playing at a playground behind Belmont Park Apartments in Woodlawn a little before 9.30 a.m. found Sarah's partially decomposing body in a wooded area behind the apartments in a ravine the 13-year-old had been beaten and stabbed. In January of 2000, a man was arrested and charged with Sarah's murder, but a month after being charged for her murder, the charges were dismissed, and as of right now, this case still remains unsolved. So, this brings somebody to justice for killing a 13-year-old, I mean, if you have any information you want to provide and I'm quite sure somebody knows something, please call Baltimore County Homicide at 410-307-2020 or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at one 7 lockup or you can text them your information to crimes, which is C-R-I-M- E.S. or 637 on your numeric keypad. Once again, those numbers are, if you want to provide any information on this unsolved homicide, you can call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-307-2020 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or you can text them your information to crimes with an S and it's C-R-I-M-E-S and on your numeric keypad, that's 274-637. There is a $2,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest or conviction for this unsolved homicide of this 13-year-old girl. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day out of nowhere and just, just like, you know what? I think I'm just going to start talking about crimes and murders and stuff like that on the podcast. But nope, that is not even half of the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this true crime podcast. And this whole world of gore and mayhem and true crime, all of that, if you can, you know, if you click on an episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, You'll understand more about why I'm so weird, as they might say, or so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very, very soon, the documentary version of the film version of this podcast in episode number one, which was featured on, uh, I think the focus was on accused child murderers, or child murders that was the focus, but the podcast or the documentary version of the very first episode, which featured uh, Aiden Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa, that will be released very, very soon. Um, I must tell y'all that I must put it out there. It's graphic. I had to keep it graphic. There are two versions, but um, the version that I decided to release is one that has been edited as much as I'm going to edit it. And it is graphic, but this is a the type of uh, company or the type of publishing that I do for this particular story that had to be portrayed that way. Once you see the story, you'll understand it better, but either way that will be available very, very soon. And when the documentary documentary, um, when that when the documentary, which was produced by Savalize Productions and filmed on location in Baltimore, Baltimore City, it will be available for download. When that's all available, I will definitely keep uh, you guys posted as to where you can download it. And while you're at it, stop on over to the new website, which is Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com, And Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access all episodes of this podcast. And you can check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like uh, relationship killers and, you know, like husband-wife types of homicides, or even Maryland's infamous teen killers. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, through 2008. Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the uh, TV One Network. You can check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled... Maryland female serial killer Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV One's Justice by Any Means, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Satroni and Jason DeLong. Once the Season 1 documentary is available for download, You'll also be able to find the links here at Maryland'sMostNotoriousMurders.com Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high-profile, another crazy homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And this has been a Savage Life production.